Your Steve Jones Show podcast will start shortly. The Steve Jones Show podcast is sponsored by Brewers Outlet, your beverage supermarket on Reagan Street in Sunbury. Sports talk where your voice counts. This is the Steve Jones Show on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Now from the Sunbury Motor Studio, here's Steve Jones. Welcome back. Great to have you with us today here on News Radio 1070 WKOK. It's Friday, brought to you by Brewers Outlet, Reagan Street in Sunbury, the beverage supermarket. Imports, domestics, microbrews, the best selection of beer anywhere. Look, the storm's clearing out. It's going to be beautiful this weekend, especially tomorrow. Wine coolers, water, soft drinks, snacks. They roast their peanuts fresh and hot every day. Six great flavors of slushies and the pickle bar led by the barrels and the dills. Indeed, second to none. All at Brewers Outlet, Reagan Street, and Sunbury, the beverage supermarket. And we're in the Sunbury Motors studio. Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors, Kia, Routes 11 and 15, Humble's Wharf. And online at sunburymotors.com. Ben Jones, stakehollers.com in a few moments. Final half hour, Corey Geiger on the fleecing of Major League Baseball uh, when it comes to how they treat the minor leagues. It's going to be very interesting. Unfunded mandates. Really? We're going to talk to uh, Corey about that in the final half hour of the show. But our play-by-play call of the day. Now, I know this is a couple days old. Now, yesterday we played Kenny Albert's play-by-play call. And Kenny's going to be on the show on Monday. But it is always a treat to hear the former voice of the Hershey Bears, the current voice of the Tampa Bay Lightning, who's now called three Stanley Cup winners in Tampa, Dave Michigan. This was his call, along with Phil Esposito, at the end of Game 5 when Tampa Bay beat Montreal Wednesday night. Nice Palat left corner getting checked. Weber, a steal, lost at point. They didn't call icing, though. Perry, left circle to Foley. Shoot, save Vasilevsky. Rebound, save again Vasilevsky. The rebound is going to come to Toffoli, left circle. Center point, Petrie. Shoots, blocked! It's out of the zone! 30 seconds left. Goodrow blocked that. It's not yet frozen. 13 seconds left. Coleman looking to grab it. Deneau trying to center it. Knocking it away. Yeti Gord. He clears it. He clears it. I don't think this is going to be an icing. No. Three seconds left. Petrie, a final shot. The Lightning have done it. They have done it. They, did they it have again. gone back to back for the second year in a row. Wow. They have won the Stanley Cup. That's Dave Michigan, as always, Dave Ken. Phil Esposito, by the way. They did it. They did it. <laughs> it cracks me up. Yeah, yeah, it's all good. <laughs> Dave Michigan uh, with the call. He does a great job. He does. And very passionate about his job. So, congratulations. How about Andre Vasilevsky? The last five series, when the Lightning have clinched a series, he's pitched a shutout, including Game 5 the other night. How about that for a record? All right. So let's turn our attention from hockey to football, basketball, and bring in Ben Jones uh, from statecollege.com. We can reminisce about a lot of things like 1994 and things like that, or Stanley Cups in 2004, like Tampa Bay. Ben, welcome. Great to have you back on the show. Yep, thanks for having me, Steve. And in 1994, I was six years old. (laughs) 1994, I was covering the U.S. Open at Oakmont when O.J. went for the ride. (laughs) So, (laughs) how about that? 
All right. Uh, interesting times, obviously. Uh, I, I said earlier in the week, and if, if you have a different opinion, please air it, um, that right now there's a lot of interest as a story and name, image, and likeness and deals that people can make, like the Miami football team and so forth. But at some point, I think it's that will fade in terms of the public. It'll fade because the games will take precedent. How do you look at it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely new and interesting, but I, I do tend to agree with you that I think for the most part that a lot of this is going to end up in the background because I think what people are going to realize is that, um, you know, there's a there's a fine there's a there's a small number of these players that are going to make a significant amount of money or be in position to make a significant amount of money, and I think really the thing where you know a lot of your average players, so to speak, benefit are some of the smaller things. You know, you can have a YouTube channel now and make money off of it. You can sell art and make money off of it. You can perform at a venue if you, you know, music is your thing and make money off of it. I think it's little things like that that will make the quality of life of your average, you know, collegiate athlete better rather than, you know, talking about, you know, how much money would have Saquon made. So I, I think those things will happen. I think things like what we've seen at Miami will happen, but I do agree that, um, you know, while it changes a lot of the variables in college athletics, I think once the games start, um, you know, the fact that you can pay Sean Clifford 15 bucks to play video games with him is going to be right. sort of on the back burner. Right. Or an autograph session. Let's get the offensive line down to said location, you know, as, you know, we'll, you know, they can make some money doing that if they want, you know, things like that. But it's interesting, as someone who obviously goes back a couple of years, when I think about the ability to make money, I think about the traditional advertising spokesperson, things like that. But obviously, I've received a pretty good education on Instagram and YouTube in the past couple of years about the ability to make money. Since you were six in 1994, that makes me a little bit younger than me. <laughs> so, you know, the ability to make money off Instagram and YouTube, is it really readily available the way some of the experts say it is for the student-athlete? I mean, I think in theory it is, and I think if you're an advertiser, obviously, you know, I am not an expert on these things, but I, I do think that, um, you know, it's an avenue to really get directly to a certain fan base or a certain group of people, um, and I think that people um, underestimate maybe the, the amount of um, what would be the word that I'm looking for? The the amount of visibility that you can get there, and the amount of advertising money that's able to be there. I, I think of, you know, there's a guy who who streams. Uh, excuse me, my phone just exploded. Um, there's a guy that uh, is streams, um, you know, video gaming online uh, on Twitch, and he has three and a half million viewers. Right. Um, and, and it's just a thing that doesn't register with people as a possibility. Now, is that to say Jake Pinnaker is going to have, you know, three and a half million people watching him? do something? No, but I do think that the platform is there and it's accessible and it's easy to do and the technology is easy and if I'm an advertiser I might say, you know, let's go directly to the source, be Instagram or YouTube or whatever these guys might be doing. I believe there's a Penn State gymnast that is number one on this campus, you know, in terms of the campus in terms of Twitter followers which, you know, again, a lot of people would not realize that, but they have the ability now to at least use that to you know, you know people think about the football players, but there are a lot of others that can capitalize on this yeah, I mean, I, I believe he's on, on TikTok, it might be, and he gets millions of views doing yeah. gymnastics things that would, would hurt the two of us if we ever even attempted it. I, and you're right. I mean, there, the Internet is, you know, a terrifying but also amazing tool 
and I think if you're, you're if you're a lot of these kids, if you're creative, if you've got time and energy and a talent or something to share, there's a lot of room to kind of express that out there in the world. And, and certainly, you know, are you going to bring in Super Bowl money for an ad spot? No, but no. you know, there's going to be people that are, you know, everything. You know, your ad bumps are probably sponsored by somebody or things like that. There's no reason that these kids can't have that as well. Maybe McClanahan sponsors somebody's podcast or something like that. You know, the the opportunity there is endless. The platforms are endless. And certainly, you know, we think in the traditional sense of TV or the sort of tell me why you really like these peanuts or something like that, but there's just so many different ways to get involved, and I think it's good uh, in this day and age for them to have those opportunities. All right, so let's get to the part that the fans really care about, and that's the part on the field. And right now on that field is recruiting. They were able to get six verbals out of what we all knew was going to be an active, hectic June once the gates opened to uh, having visits. Uh, what are your thoughts on the job that Penn State staff, led by James Franklin, and what they were able to do during the month of June to set up what's uh, obviously been an interesting July? Yeah, I mean, I think they've done a great job. I think at the end of the day, um, you know, if you're Penn State, it's not so much a question of where is your recruiting class ranked at the end of the year, and obviously being number two right now is very nice. It probably at the end of the day won't stay there, but it's, it's a nice thing to do. I think the better thing or the bigger thing is that you're landing your targets. You know, if you can go out in the recruiting trail and say, look, we shot, you know, 85% from the field, um, you have to feel pretty good about yourself. And I think that's what makes things like Nicholas Singleton's commitment big. I think it makes, you know, them chasing down Keenan Nelson Jr., who isn't committed yet, but is, is certainly a, a Penn State lean, as far as I can tell. You know, just the fact that they've got five of the top eight guys in state committed, I think that's big because we knew going into this, this cycle that it was going to be a big year in the state. It was going to be a big year for Penn State to bounce back from. Um, you know, I think the 2021 class will probably, in retrospect, look better than it does on paper. Um, but certainly, just from the traditional stars and rankings and all those things, you know, I think you know James has is, is been open about how it could have been better in that regard. So I think the opportunity was there. I think they've gone out and pretty well executed. Um, you know, there's some still some big fish out there in the water to get. But I think at this point, if you're James Franklin and your staff, you go look. We've targeted a bunch of guys, and, and we've gotten most of the ones that you want. You're never going to get all of them. Um, but if you're shooting a pretty good percentage from the field, you're going to be happy. And so far, they've been able to do that and do it with kids that, you know, have had some reasonable and, and attractive offers from other programs. Have any? You know, it, we've gone through, obviously, the spring. Now you've gone through, obviously, June into early July in the recruiting part and, of course, spring football before that. Any different questions in your mind now compared to maybe questions you had in April? Um, I, I mean, I think to a certain extent, it's it's all sort of the same thing. I mean, yeah. I, I am curious from a, a housekeeping perspective, you know, can they get a last-minute quarterback out of the portal just for the sake of depth? Um, you know, how do some of these transfers integrate into the program now that they've had some time in the strength program? But to me, and, and I am, you know, I do not like to be the guy that pins it all on one person or puts it all on the shoulders of one person, and certainly sure. it won't come down to this, but I, I do think that at the end of the day, Penn State's season is going to be, you know, which version of Sean Clifford are they going to get? Are they going to get the 2019 version that was smart and, and capable with the ball? And, and certainly there are a lot of reasons why he was not great at times in 2020. It wasn't all him, but I think it's a quarterback game, and when you've got a guy that's about to be a third-year starter um, at the most important position on the field, or at least one of them, you know, it, it, we're going to find out. You know, we're going to find out really quick with those first three weeks 
um, what sort of team and what sort of quarterback Sean Clifford and Penn State are going to be. So, you know, there's always housekeeping things. There's always nuts and bolts because the offensive line's got to be good. The defensive line's got to get to the quarterback. Receivers have to make catches. The running backs have to be healthy. It's not just Sean Clifford, but to me, um, if, you, if the biggest question mark of how these things goes comes back to him. So um, I think there's lots of little things, but at the end of the day, the questions are pretty much the same for everybody, I think. Well, let's be fair. I mean, if you're covering Ohio State, do you have any idea how C.J. Stroud's going to play? I mean, really? I mean, a lot of it comes down to how well, I mean, people are assuming hey, he's going to be the top quarterback in the league. Really? So you've watched all these snaps he's taken, and you're really impressed. What? I mean, it's like, I mean, it really comes down to how he's going to play at Ohio State. He may play great. He may not. Nobody knows. I mean, everybody's quarterbacks in that, in that range. Yeah, I think it actually makes for an interesting year in the Big Ten, too, because I would say if Michael Penix was, if, if we knew for 100% certain that he was going to be the Michael Penix of last year, you yeah. know, you might actually pencil him in as maybe the top guy or at least the most dynamic. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, Sean's got a real opportunity here to say, look, last year wasn't what we wanted it to be, wasn't what I wanted it to be. Certainly, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons that didn't work in his favor come out, play well, and, and, you know, at the end of the day, the chips will fall where they will, but he's certainly got as any opportunity as anybody in the league to lay claim to being the best or at least the most consistent quarterback in that league, and he's certainly got the experience. If there's one thing you can say about Sean Clifford is he sees everything and he works hard, and, and those two things tend to pay off in the long run, and I am an eternal optimist, so I tend to think he's going to lean more towards the 2019 play than 2020, but... Uh, if I've learned anything from the pandemic or anything from watching a bunch of football, it's we can sit here and guess as much as we want, but until they play, we just don't know. All right, basketball. Uh, I wanted to get to that because you follow it so closely. Penn State has 10 scholarship players right now, if my count is correct. Um, which you know, And they've got, you know, before this month is out, they're going to practice. Uh, what do you think of the job they did in the transfer portal to at least bolster the numbers and the experience? Yeah, I mean, when I talked to, to Micah, which I have had to adjust to meaning Shrewsbury, not Parsons, over the last 12 <laughs> or months or so, um, yeah. I was actually talking to James about whether he had talked much to Micah and he wasn't sure which one I meant. But, yeah, I, I, think, um, I think they've done a good job. I mean, when I talked to him, he said, you want to get old and stay old, and we've seen – you know, over the years, the better Penn State teams have been the ones that have had guys that have been around for three or four years that have the right. experience in the Big Ten, that have played a lot of basketball, and, and maybe they're not the best player on the floor at any given moment. But what made Lamar Stevens so good, what made Taylor Battle so good, what made a lot of those guys good was they were good players, but they had also been around for a long time. So I think, you know, Jalen Pickett, Giovanni Scott, Jaheim Cronwell, you know, these guys, Greg Lee, um, you know, to bring guys in that have a lot of experience. Maybe it's not in the Big Ten, but, you know, I think Jalen Pickett can get a bucket in any league. Um, you know, I, I think these guys are going to be good. The hard part is, you know, how do you mesh them all together? How do you mesh them in with, you know, Seth Lundy? How do you mesh them in with Miles Dredd and Sam? How do you get all these pieces to work together? Um, but I think, you know, given the situation that they inherited, just in terms of roster turnover and the uncertainty of, uh, the transfer portal situation, I, I, I think that they've done a pretty good job, and I think for the most part, if you're Michael uh, Shrewsbury, you, you know, you go, we've done about as well as we can do up to this point, and, and I think, you know, as long as they look like they have some idea of which basket's the one they're supposed to score in this year, um, you know, that's a good step in the right direction for a year one. He did an interview with John Rothstein of CBS Sports, and in the interview he said, look, um, the previous staff 
left a blueprint for success for us. I thought that was a really interesting comment that he made. Because I mean, I mean, you've talked to him. This is a zero ego guy. I mean, you know, he's not in here to reinvent the wheel. He just wants to come in here, graduate players, and win. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, talking to him, he definitely has a different personality than Pat. That you know, then again, um, he has coached zero games in the Penn State men's basketball. Uh, yeah. Uh, machine and experience which lends itself to all sorts of different forms of insanity at any given moment but I, I think that um, yeah I mean I, I think the blueprint is there because at the end of the day Penn State basketball is going to have similar challenges unless something fundamentally changes over the next X number of years you're going to be a bit of an underdog you're going to have to recruit a little bit differently you're going to have to find guys you're going to have to have that you know to steal the phrase the, the attitude um, of going out with that sort of chip on your shoulder. So I don't think the blueprint changes very much at all. I think what will be interesting is how do you tinker with the pieces? How do you make your in-game decisions? How do you develop players? Um, but you're right. I mean, I think that, you know, Penn State has figured out more or less how to win in the Big Ten. It's just a matter of, A, can you get the guys to do it? Because you can have the best system in the world, but if you miss open threes, it doesn't matter if it was open or not. And, you know, how do you develop players into that the guy that you want them to be rather than going out and saying, you know, we're just going to recruit, you know, five Derek Livelys every year. The fact of the matter is Penn State's not going to become a home for five-star prospects, but can you develop guys that maybe turn into four stars, maybe turn into that diamond in the rough? And I think you do those things. They did it pretty well the last couple of years. If you do it some more, um, you know, I think maybe the, the, the timeline that you're looking at is a little bit different than the last time around. I think in 40 years I've noticed all that. All right. <laughs> I've lived all that stuff you talked about. <laughs> ben, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. It was really great talking with you. Yep, thanks for having me, Steve. Ben Jones, statecollege.com. Great to have him on the show today. I mean, so much ground to cover. Maybe the offseason. I mean, Penn State basketball's already started some workouts, which is good. Micah Shrewsbury has been out on the practice floor with this team going through some drills, which has been great. Uh, they've been hitting the recruiting trail as well. Uh, Penn State football, everybody knew that on June 1st when the floodgates opened and you were allowed to have on-campus visits, whether it's official or unofficial, having camps, it was going to be a busy month. And when Andy Frank was on the Penn State Coaches Show with us the week of the um, blue-white game, the blue-white practice, uh, I asked him about the organization it takes to do something like this, and Andy is incredibly organized. You know, and they've got Candy Sanders back, and that's made a big difference. Uh, and, I mean, the entire group, they do a great, great job. And James Franklin expects the best, pushes hard for the best, and they deliver it. And so they go through the month, and you knew if they did it the way I thought they would, that they would get a series of verbal commitments and did getting six in the past week, which has been great, energizes the fan base. Yes, there's a lot of you know ranking news as to where they're ranked and so forth. Okay, great. I mean, that, that, that's fabulous. Uh, but it took a lot of hard work to do that, and they've been able to do it. And organization was a big, big part of that. And those guys did a great job organizationally of making that happen. Uh, and then, of course, we talk some Penn State hoop with them as well. Now, coming up in the next half hour, we'll talk with Corey Geiger. He wrote an article in the Altoona Mirror 
Now they finally have it down to 120 minor league teams. Now Major League Baseball is telling these 120 teams what's expected in their ballparks. Oh, and by the way, they're not going to fund it. They expect teams to spend, in some cases, millions to upgrade their ballparks to, quote, Major League specifications. Corey will talk about that in a moment. Brought to you by our good friends at Brewers Outlet, Reagan Street in Sunbury. The Beverage Supermarket on News Radio 1070, WKOK. Party time, game time, or just fun time. Doesn't matter what time it is, because it's Brewers Outlet time. The Beverage Supermarket has the area's largest beer selection, imports, microbrews, ciders, and domestics. Pick from over 100 ice-cold 12-packs and dozens of 24-ounce singles. Soda, snacks, hot sauces, fresh roasted peanuts. Make it one-stop party shopping, and don't forget the pickle bar. So whatever you're celebrating or just doing it up, Brewers Outlet, Reagan Street, Sunbury, wants to see you. And thank you for your years of patronage. Sports talk where your voice counts. This is the Steve Jones Show on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Now from the Sunbury Motor Studio, here's Steve Jones. Final half hour for the week. Great to have you with us here on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Brought to you by Brewers Outlet, Reagan Street in Sunbury, the beverage supermarket. Ah, stock up for the weekend. Go now. Right? Go take care of it now. It's going to be beautiful tomorrow. Imports, domestics, microbrews, best selection of beer anywhere. Wine coolers, water, soft drinks, plenty of snacks. They roast their peanuts fresh and hot every day. Six great flavors of slushies. And the pickle bar, led by the barrels and the dills. Indeed, second to none. All at Brewers Outlet, Reagan Street, and Sunbury. The beverage supermarket. And we're in the Sunbury Motors studio on this fine Friday. Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors Kia. Routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. And online at sunburymotors.com. Minor League Baseball. Major League Baseball is... Treating minor league baseball so poorly, and Corey Geiger exposed that in an outstanding article in the Altoona Mirror earlier in the week. Corey, welcome back. It is great to have you with us. Good to be with you, Steve. Hope everything's going well. I hope everything's going well for you. Uh, You wrote a, a fascinating article in the Altoona Mirror on a subject that you and I did discuss a year ago, but it's always great when you can bring it back full circle. And that is the tours that Major League Baseball made of minor league parks last year and have been doing this year, and the upgrades. Is this the equivalent of a government unfunded mandate? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I mean, Major League Baseball is going to strong arm these minor league teams to upgrade their facilities. Now, I know some more information than I was really allowed to print with with regard to how many. Uh, upgrades Major League Baseball is going to be forcing on people. Uh, All I can say is Major League Baseball sent out a list with dozens and dozens and dozens of mandates that each ballpark has to um, live up to. And then each ballpark then has to go through those dozens and dozens and dozens of things to make sure they meet the standards. And if they don't, they've they've got to make upgrades to meet those standards. So some might have five things they've got to do. Some might have 10. Some might have 50, Steve. I mean, they're, and this is going to cost these places 
a lot of the places anyway, a, a good bit of money. I'd say a million, two or three for a good number of minor league franchises around the country. Well, in part of this article, you do reference at one point Redding in an older ballpark. I mean, yeah. the expenses that Redding will have to put forward will be heavy seven figures. Fair? Yes. Uh, the uh, An estimate that came out a few weeks ago was $15 million. Now, look, Redding... As far as I know, and I haven't been out to all the minor league franchises out west, sure. Reading is the best minor league franchise in the east. I mean, Reading's franchise, they just do everything right. They they, yep. they have an old ballpark. It's small. It's not overly comfortable. From a player standpoint, it's not comfortable. Everything is tiny, but, boy, they put on a great show. They have great attendance. They do everything well. If they have to spend $15 million to upgrade their ballpark, I mean, you just really wonder, you know, well, why not just go build a, a, another ballpark? I mean, how much would it be to just start over? Those, those are going to be the questions for a place like Reading. And that's, that's a place, Steve, for any of your listeners that have ever been to Reading. It is a terrific ballpark. But just like old Fenway or Wrigley or anything, just because you're old, that uh, one of the big things is you don't meet modern standards in that, in that regard, really. All right, so we've just gone through the cutdown, and of course, you know, when they came here to Medler Field, Lebrano Park, and they talked about here in case State College ended up being one of the 120. They talked about items here, such as okay, you got the two batting cages, you're in good shape, uh, but gee, you have a kitchen, and you yeah. have an area for your team, but you don't have it for the visiting team. Is that part of what Altoona has to do? Yes, uh, Altoona actually does not even have a full kitchen and, and, and commissary. You need an eating area for both teams. And so, uh, again, think about a, a minor league facility. They, I mean, these, are, these are not gigantic venues. A lot of times they're smaller. Right. These, these franchises are going to have to find places within their ballpark to build internally kitchens, uh, commissaries for both teams. A, a, a locker room slash office for a female staff member. Now, there aren't many female staff members in minor league baseball. Right. There, there should be, and there probably will be going forward. So it's understandable that you need office and locker locker room space for a female staff member. But that's going to cost a lot of money. I mean, you, you, got, you these places again that don't have a lot of space, find space internally during a structure that might be thirty, forty, fifty years old. Yeah. to build another locker room along with a kitchen. That's where these expenses are really going to add up. Now, I realize they're cr trying to create an experience as they move up through the ranks. I understand that part. Uh, but we've just gone through a pandemic. Isn't there a realization out there of what we've just experienced by Major League Baseball? No, Major League Baseball doesn't give a damn. There we go. Give a damn about there you go. There's the answer I thought I'd get. Yeah, they, yeah, they don't give a damn about any of these people, honestly. I, I you know, Steve, you, uh, we've been around minor league baseball for a long time now, and Major League Baseball is just pa making a power play here. That's all they're doing. And here's one thing that's really, really uh, important in all of this, okay? Major League Baseball has paid minor league players sub minimum wage a, a, a minimum uh, age money for years and years and years and years yep you know if you add up the spike salaries and how much money they the spike player salaries how much time they would spend 
practicing games, but it came to like three, four dollars an hour. Steve. That's, so that's minimum right. wage, yeah, it's ridiculous. And the curve were a little higher; it was maybe six, seven dollars an hour. So minor league, major league baseball, and minor, they haven't cared about these players forever. And now all of a sudden, they're doing a complete opposite, you know, one eighty, and saying now we want these minor league facilities to all be, you know, tremendous uh, facilities. But here's where here's where the rubber meets the road. You're going to force these franchises to spend one, two, three million dollars or more on things that will not impact the fans. That's right. Minor league baseball exists because of fans, and you're going to force them to spend all this money, and they're not going to be able to make any money off of it in return. Fans won't care anything about extra batting cages or kitchens or female. Fans care about amenities at the ballpark. Yeah. That's really where you're. They're they're holding these the these uh, franchises hostage in a lot of ways. Steve. They're going to force them to spend all this money, and and not really be able to benefit from it in terms of their own revenue. Well, why is the MLB draft league sixty eight games? It's sixty eight games instead of forty because the sixty eight game model gave the six franchises a chance to get some cash. And they yeah, need the sure. thir- thirty four home games apiece. They did finally convince them of that, which was a big move. All right, so now let's get to this part. Altoona obviously has been a model franchise with a model ballpark. All right, so let me put this out there to you. They just dropped 40 franchises, but, like, you're talking about the Appalachian League, several several franchises in the New York Penn League, Pioneer League, things like that. Exactly where are their options? Yeah. Yeah, What's what's Major League Baseball's option? If you don't go to Altoona, where are you going to go? That's a good point, and it's really because could that actually give minor league franchises some leverage? See, at this point, over the last year, not having a season last year, all minor league franchises are living in fear right now. They're all living in fear I agree. because they they missed their their revenue last year, and now they've got to worry about all these upgrades. But could it potentially swing the other way? Based on the question that you just mentioned, okay. Could, could make could minor league baseball owners all band together and say, "Hey, you're going to force us to do all this stuff. What if we don't? Where are you going to go? Where? Are you, how are you going to operate your business without minor league players? You, could could that happen, Steve? I don't know. I think again, there's so much fear involved, but that actually could be a little bit of leverage for minor league owners if they were all able to stand together and say. Hell no, we're not going to do this because if we don't, where are you going to go? Well, that'd be the equivalent of an NFL strike. You know, part of the problem is you know you'd have you'd have people looking around saying like Sacramento, we can't do this. Yeah, we, we got it. Yeah, and they can't afford to be missing any more games. That's the leverage Major League Baseball has over them. But at the same time, you're like, well, you don't like Altoona? Where are you going to go, Erie? You. Steve, you know this very well, and people inside minor league baseball know this very well, but I don't think casual sports fans know this really at all. Minor league baseball franchises do not make a lot of money. No. They just don't. You know, Maybe Sacramento. I, I, I looked through some of these numbers last year. There are a few that are in the million and a half to $2.5 million revenue per year. Most minor league franchises make a profit of $200,000, $600,000 a right. year. Exactly. So, so their their entire year, the profit is less than five hundred thousand dollars for for a whole lot. 
So you're not talking about major, you know, business entities here. And I don't think that sports fans, are, you know, who maybe go to these ballparks fully understand that. These are not rich owners, by and large. These are not, you know, guys that have $100 million, you know. Minor league baseball owners, a lot of times, you know, while they're not using the, the franchise as their primary source of income, they certainly not are, can't afford to lose money on them like they did last year. So that's really where the minor league baseball business model is just fascinating compared to most businesses. Because you would, I think most fans would probably think, okay, you know, the Altoona Curve, the Trenton Thunder, the, the Reading Fighting Fields, maybe they make five, ten million dollars a year. No. no, it's probably more like five hundred to eight hundred thousand dollars a year. Well, and Sacramento draws about fourteen thousand a game. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, they're they're a completely different league uh, when it comes to the money making part and the fact that they get people through the turnstiles. Because now let's get to that part. You talked about all the uh, amenities Major League Baseball wants to see, and yep. not one of them affects the fan. And in minor league baseball, the fan is your revenue source. There is no TV deal to help you out. You need turnstiles. You need people through. You need experience. I mean, I'd rather put my money into upgrading the concourse before yeah. I end up putting money into upgrading the kitchen for the visiting team that's there for three days. And therein lies the issue and why there's so much anger and frustration within minor league baseball operators. Because not only did they miss a year, then not only did they have to wait around to find out if they were going to be on the 120, right. now, they're being, now they're being held hostage to spend this money which, again, is not going to help their bottom line. Sure, go, build, go add the concourse. Go build you know, a bigger party deck. Go build, you know, Redding's got a swimming pool in the outfield. Right. Those things help. Those things can all help you, you know, get fans in and, and spend more money. Um, but, boy, that's what, Steve, it's, it's going to be tough. Now, again, some franchises are going to be better mm-hmm. off. Maybe they'll only have to spend 800, 800 grand or a million but most places, to, to meet these requirements, and again, it's a lengthy, lengthy, lengthy list of requirements. Um, so it, to, to meet these requirements, it's going to cost a lot of money. The only way I can see it working, the only way, is if the state gets involved right. and helps out with a lot of funds. Because, the, again, these are not the kinds of businesses that can just afford two, $3 million upgrades. Exactly. It, because, look, uh, PPG field is uh, publicly funded. I mean, that, it was built with public funds. Uh-huh. Uh, you're looking at the people of the areas and, you know, and saying, okay, it's really going to be on your back. So even if, if the state comes through, it's still taxpayer money. Sure. But if these teams leave, which, you know, uh, is possible, if, if, if Altoona loses the curve, you're talking about really one of the biggest things this the city has ever had. Agreed. Uh, and but but here's the issue: there's six minor league franchises in Pennsylvania. How much money can can the state? You, you can't give one team some money and not another. Um, how much money can the state do? They gave Erie twelve million dollars yeah. four years ago. Yep. Twelve million. That was before all of this. Um, so. You know, can can the state kick in fifteen million to divide up between the six teams to help with these? Whatever the case might be, yeah. uh, these owners, by and large, are going to need some help to pay for these upgrades. Have you been to City Island? Yeah, I love City Island. They've they've done a nice job there over the last fifteen twenty years. No, no, they have done a nice job. But you know, when you look at that ballpark, 
is it really halfway between Reading and Altoona in terms of what it would yeah, probably about, would need? Yeah, probably so. Uh, I, again, uh, underneath with the, the batting cages, the kitchens, the 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 uh, uh, female office staff, then there's things like padded outfield walls. Lighting can get very expensive if, if your lighting is not up to standard. Uh, those those are the you know, a lot of the primary things that these places are going to have to do. And yeah, Reading is on the upper end. Harrisburg's probably more in the middle. Uh, Altoona needs 15% of the things on right. the list. Uh, that, yeah. That's what I've been told. They need 15%, which is pretty good. You know, if you're in the 30 to 40% range, you know, you, these these places are going to be worried about their franchise. Now, I want to. You mentioned lighting in there. Okay, lighting to me is part of the fan experience. So I yeah. mean, I, so I'm all. I mean, so it's great for the players, but it's also great for the fan experience. So to me, that one dovetails between between the two. I agree with that. Speakers would probably come yes. into play too. Uh, things that help the fans. But again, let me reemphasize the point. Uh, I stumbled on this a little bit earlier. Major League Baseball hasn't given a damn about minor league players no. for a long, 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 long time with how much money they've made. Uh, again, you're talking sub minimum wage earnings. And so now they all of a sudden want these minor league players to be playing in major league caliber stadiums almost. Come on. It, it's, it is, it's ridiculous. Uh, it is just uh, the, the only reason they, they, they cut all these players because they didn't want to pay all these rookie ball right. and short season players. And so now they're coming back and really sticking it to the franchise as well. It, it's, it's an unfortunate time really in the history of, of the business. Well, what's interesting is that they've leaned heavily toward analytics. And when you look at analytics and the theory behind the analytics, one of them, which isn't exposed that often, is that they really don't want players over the age of 33, or yeah. as few as possible. 33. Okay, well, so you want them under 33. Exactly where do you get them? You develop them in the minor leagues. Sure. <laughs> See, that's why Major League Baseball makes no sense as a business model. They make no sense to me at all. And as you mentioned earlier, where are the where are they going to go if they strong arm these minor league franchises and the franchises just say no, we can't do it, we won't do it. Sure, you you do run the risk of losing your franchise, yeah. but I mean. If 50 of them or 75 of them say we won't do it, how are they going to replace 50 or 75 you know, uh, facilities that are even remotely close to those facilities they could it, it potentially lose? Like if, if Altoona were to say, no, we're not going to do it, they might be able to replace one Altoona. Right. Could they replace 50 Altoonas? No. no there aren't, those facilities are not out there in the country. Not only that, those markets aren't out there. And say, for example, yeah. hey, let's build a new ballpark and attract a team. There's not an appetite for that right now since the pandemic, right. and that. Yeah, it's, uh, but the problem is you can't. You're not going to be able to get a 120 ownership group together to stay solid to say, "Hey, look, you know what? Right. You're ridiculous." That's true. Could you get states? Could, could you get states involved? Pennsylvania, California, these states that have a lot of minor league franchises. Could there be some movement instead of everybody just scurrying to find the 15 or 20 million dollars to split up? Could there potentially be movement within state legislatures to say, and you band together that way? Again, I'm just thinking outside the box here. I don't think it's likely, but you know, at some point you have to stand up to the bully. 
And Major League Baseball is just a big bully in this whole situation. It's a it's a big bully with a lot of problems because guess what? On November thirtieth at midnight, they're not going to have a player agreement. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we could be looking at a word stoppage before it's too long. Which means next year you might start next year with only minor league baseball because they don't fall into the purview. Yeah, that's true. And again, it just bothers me because yeah. I've done this for thirty. I years, know how li- how little people uh, they cared about minor league baseball, yeah. and now all of a sudden let's spend millions of dollars. So they're going to make you spend millions of dollars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. okay. Government unfunded mandate. We want your town to spend this. What, 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 wait a minute. We have to? <laughs> yes, and you have to pay for it. Oh, great. That's Major League Minor League Baseball. Corey, awesome column. Great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate the discussion, Pat. Corey Geiger, covering Minor League Baseball, doing so on the side with the Altoona Mirror. Great to have him with us on the show today to give us that perspective. What a week. Well, we'll be back on Monday. Kenny Albert's going to be here on Monday. Phil Steele, college football coming up on Tuesday. So we've got a lot going on. Today's show has been brought to you by Brewers Outlet, Reagan Street in Sunbury, the beverage supermarket. And we're in the Sunbury Motors studio. Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors, Key Routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. Great to have you with us. Matt Catrillo, great, awesome job as always. Can't do this without him. And our thanks to each and every one of you for being with us. You mean the world to us. Have a great weekend, everyone, on News Radio 1070 WKOK. When it comes to car buying, there's the other guy's way, and then there's the SMC way. The other guys force you into a vehicle you really don't want. The Subway Motors way lets you take the time you need to browse, ask questions, and take the test drive and think on it. For over 100 years, the Mertz family and all their employees have made your experience the most pleasant one you'll ever have. The other guys won't offer you the best price for your trade, no matter how much they say they will. The SMC way is their promise to provide you with the most money the market shows your vehicle's worth. The SMC way is to offer you all applicable factory rebates on new vehicles and generous discounts. Looking for a pre-owned vehicle? The SMC way checks each vehicle in a 200-mile radius to determine the lowest price, then beat it. It's the lowest price promise, just part of the SMC way. The choice is up to you. The other guy's way or the SMC way? The SMC way wins every time. Sunbury Motors Company in the North 4th Street Auto Plaza, Sunbury, and at sunburymotors.com. Selling more cars and satisfying more customers for over 100 years.